Happy Friday. It's January 8th, 2016. Happy New Year, everybody. It's the first episode of the podcast in the new year. This is Travelogue, um, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. And my name is Brad Rickman. I'm the digital director uh, at Traveler. I'm here with most of our digital editorial team. We have Meredith Carey here, who's our assistant editor. We have Lilith Marcus, who is a contributing editor for us and a travel editor. We have Jaina, who's our style editor, and she's been on the podcast before. Everybody here has been on the podcast before except Meredith. She's a rookie. And we have Laura Redman, who's our digital um, deputy editor. Um, today, we're going to start, like we always do in the new year, with a cocktail. <laughs> and it is uh, this one is coming to us from the Belloc at the Hotel Modern in New Orleans. It's called a Yellow Chartreuse Cobbler. And I have to um, apologize and confess that we're missing one key ingredient from this. We had to improvise on it. I couldn't find the Bitterman's Habanero uh, shrub, which is a key part of this. So we sort of faked it. Um, so I, I apologize. You can find the recipe for this on the website today. Um, and uh, we're going to all have a taste, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. Lachaim. You can really taste the yellow. <laughs> <laughs> you what, can. What does a shrub taste like in my cocktail? I would like to. Uh, a shrub, as I understand it, not, not an expert on this. We need Paul or uh, Calder here maybe, but... Um, a shrub is a vinegar-based uh, citrus uh, concoction, oh. traditionally, right? Jana, yep. you, you knew a little about that, right? Yep. And um, the Bitterman's thing, I will say I have it at home. I, I mistakenly forgot it, so it's entirely my fault. It's actually great, and it sounds like a really hot thing, um, spicy thing, but it's incredibly well-balanced, so I would highly recommend it. Run out and get the, the Bitterman's um, uh, habanero shrub. Okay, so it's a new year. We have uh, uh, had a busy week in travel news. So I thought today to get us started in the new year, maybe we could just go through and talk about some of the stories that we've seen recently, both you know in the sort of world of straight travel, um, things that are going to impact travelers this year, but also just some of the more kind of fun and interesting stuff that we've come across in the last week. Um, one of the one of those things that has really been um, important for for the audiences has been the um, the story about the TSA's changes in the ID that they will accept. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about what's the story there? Sure. So basically, TSA has said that there will be several states in the U.S. and Puerto Rico and Guam um, whose licenses it won't accept at airports anymore. And the origin of this is in uh, 2005, after the 9-11, a bit after the 9-11 commission, there's something called the Real ID Act that was passed. And the end goal was basically to make fake IDs harder to obtain. Now, the extension on the Real ID Act, fast forward, is set to expire on January 10th, which means there are nine states that are kind of at risk of violating this right now. So if you have a license, I'm sorry to say, from Alaska, California, Missouri, Illinois, Minnesota, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Carolina, Washington State, and then, as I said, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, you may have a little trouble flying in 2016. Now, the good thing is this is not immediate. This is not like as of January 10, you can't get on a plane. There's a 120-day extension. Um, so... What I do recommend is that you consider getting a passport if you are from one of those states. Oh, that's a tight timeline, though. For it a is a tight timeline, but, the, you know, they're not trying to prohibit travel. Uh, they're just trying to crack down on fake IDs, basically. So just keep that in mind. Uh, we'll follow up with the latest as we see it. And is this a result of the those particular states not changing the way that their driver's licenses look? Yeah, so the list actually included a couple other states earlier last year. New York was on it. But those states have made changes and are going to update the way that their IDs look so that travelers in 2016 will be able to use that ID. Okay. So they've complied with with what the TSA is looking for. Is there any chance that states that are still on this list can make it through without, like can change their IDs yes. so that they conform? Yeah, absolutely. And generally speaking, this is just kind of the TSA cracking down a bit on uh, its, well, its rules in the new year. You know, there was a lot of tension at the end of the year yeah. in 2015. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there have been, you might have seen um, a decrease in the number of people allowed to kind of like skip ahead into the TSA pre-check line. Um, our aviation correspondent, Barbara Peterson, wrote about that at the end of the year last year. Um, basically, for a while, they were trying to just keep lines short 
in, at some airports. So right. they were letting people who don't have TSA go through the TSA line. Yeah, that's happened to me at least two or three times. Yeah, not anymore. Yeah, I'm sounds sorry. like not anymore in 2016. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Again, we'll see. You never know how climate will change, but for now, expect that. So it's all a reaction to the Paris and to San Bernardino. They're not saying that. They're not quite saying that. It was more. It, it had been happening through the end of the year, but I mean, Paris and Brussels and Beirut. Then yeah. none of that helped. Yeah. So, okay. um, and and so this is something that not a lot of people know. But you actually don't have to have an ID to travel, right? You Technically speaking, you don't have to have a license. Would you have, you to, have to have, have a license. proof of residency in the United States and of some sort? I thought you could go and they would do an interview with you and they would do some kind of research and try to figure out who you were. But you would still get some proof of ID out of that process. You yeah, would I have mean, some sort of identification. I don't have a driver's license. Right. So I have to have a state ID that's a non-driver's ID, but it does have to have that I live in New York State and gives information about me. Although now I use my um, TSA pre-check. Because it has my photo on it. Global entry, too, right? You yes. can use now? But for domestic flights. I mean, obviously, I would have a passport on an international flight. But right. domestically, I can just use my TSA pre-check card since it has my photo on it. Okay. And remember, there is the passport card, too, that you can have. That is what a lot of people got to go to Canada and Mexico. So it is basically an enhanced license. That's not too hard to get. Do you have to have a passport to get the passport card? No. Okay. So the passport card is kind of like a starter kit for the passport. <coughs> Does it also come from the TSA? Or does it come from state by state? That's a federal. Mm-hmm. The passport. You, you apply for it thing. through a similar process to applying for your passport. Yeah. Okay. The other thing that was in the news that's related to that was, um, well, not really, but um, so Brazil is going to suspend the requirement that you have. Is that only for the United? Only for people from the United States, or is that like global? No, I think it was a couple countries. Um, it was Australia, Japan, Japan, Canada, and I think I the UK. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm not positive, but. So up until now, and when is that starting to, to go into effect? I think it starts maybe a week or two before the Olympics, and okay. you don't have to have proof that you're going to the Olympics to use that program. It, they're just suspending visas for those countries, kind of, I think, to increase tourism. But right? also to make it easier, mm-hmm. because they know they're going to get a lot more tourists than they usually do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, a, I think that will stay, that will be the case through mid-September, I believe. So stick around. The Olympics are running mid, mid-August, a couple weeks, so... And, and Brazil visas are usually pretty expensive, but they last for five, ten years. So it'll be nice for people who are just going to the Olympics. But in the long run, if you want to go to Brazil frequently, it makes sense to get a visa. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you're saving something like $150, $160, mm-hmm. and a whole lot of a headache. A lot of work. Oh, my God. And then so another piece of um, airline-related news this week that we covered was the Malaysia Airlines ban of checked baggage. Um, what was behind that? So it was cost-saving, essentially. And as we might all know at this point, Malaysia Air has had a rough year, mm-hmm. and not a lot of people want to fly it right now. Um, so there were strong headwinds predicted across the Atlantic. So they were not allowing checked bags on flights going to a few key UK and European cities. So, I mean, so essentially this is a, an engineering problem of some kind? Right. They wanted to make the plane way less. Right. And they didn't want to spend more money on fuel. Right. So the idea that they came up with was to pass that on to their passengers, which I'm really nervous about because I don't want this to become an industry-wide trend. Yeah, that was what I thought when I read that piece is, is this something that other airlines are going to start doing? Like, remember the first time you got checked for a bag and you, like, charged for a bag and you thought that was an anomaly and now it's just the way we live? Right. But, okay, so th- can you check a bag if you pay, or do you... No. No, you cannot check a bag. And no, it was yeah. just it was just for two days, for those two days where it was predicted. So I think the fear is that airlines will be saying, oh, the weather's going to be horrible, right. so just for this one or two flights, right. you won't be able to check bags, which I feel like is a huge inconvenience to right. those people who are And the bulk of the go. passengers who were affected were international business travelers, which right. I can imagine must be so frustrating, like if you need to get back at a certain time, but your stuff can't come with you. Yeah. It feels self-defeating, too, because if the problem is that they're having a rough business year and now they make it really hard to travel on that airline. It's not the greatest PR. Not the greatest PR. Not not customer service with a smile. (laughs) Although I I don't really think it's going to inspire a lot of airlines. I mean, that's a pretty drastic move to not allow check bags, period. I mean, we may see more restrictions on the size of the bag that you can bring on overhead into overhead bins or... 
I think that was the biggest thing. Was there was a big, there was a bit of uh, controversy over them shrinking the inches, the size of your bag, and yeah. were luggage brands going to start making smaller bags mm. in order to accommodate that? That was that came up early last year. I don't know that anything really happened, but when there I was. When I was traveling over uh, Thanksgiving and the holidays, I had for the first time flight attendants and um, desk agents picking up people's carry-ons and putting them in the bin and telling them they had to check them. Um, even Group A, everyone who was going on the plane had to make sure their bag fit, and I had never experienced that before where they actually fit your bag into the box and made sure that you could put it in the overhead bin. And it's box. a little embarrassing when they yeah. do because they might like try to shove your bag, like, I don't know trying to shove you into a coat that doesn't quite fit. You're like, oh, just stop. I get it. My bag is too big. Like, just check it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Where were you flying when they did that? Um, I was flying from New York to Dallas all the, both of the time. It's not even that terrible a flight, right? No. So why were they so concerned? I was on a Raleigh to New York flight. Really? And this was the first time that I had seen... I've seen this a lot on European budget carriers. Like, this mm -hmm. happens on EasyJet and Ryanair all the time, but I had never seen it on a domestic U.S. flight before. The woman ahead of me, when she was checking her bag, they told her that her carry-on weighed five pounds over, and if she didn't transfer five pounds worth of stuff to oh. her checked mm. bag, hmm. then she wasn't going to be able to take it with her. Did she so do it? She did, and luckily it wasn't a huge amount. Like, I think if it had been, you know, 15 or 20 pounds, it would have been really difficult. And she didn't get stuck with an oversized baggage fee, but she could have. Mm -hmm. But I'd seen that a lot on European budget carriers. And this was the first time I'd ever seen it in the U.S. And she seemed just as surprised by it as I was. Yeah. Mm. I didn't even know there was a weight limit on a carry-on mm. bag. I mean, I know there's the size thing, but I didn't right. know there was a weight limit on them. They may sometimes just set a limit and say that your check and carry-on has to fall under that limit. I mean, I've seen them do a lot of arbitrary things like, you know, okay, there's not a lot of space or whatever. They, they don't even give an explanation and suddenly everybody's got a gate check. I've seen that happen. Mm -hmm. yep. And you don't really know what's behind it all the time. Um, but I've never seen the, the enforcement of the weight. And limit. then what you get sometimes, I feel like I hear this proposal once every couple of years, but it never comes to fruition, is airlines saying that they are going to come up with a number that both your baggage and you, the person, can weigh. Oh, and that really? They will, yeah, it's especially Yikes. on yeah. low-cost carriers, you start hearing these rumors about, again, it's never happened, but you'll hear stories about, okay, well, everybody's going to be allowed, allowed a certain number of pounds, and then there are all these concerns about, will thin people have to pay less to fly? Will overweight people have to pay more to fly? And so it never ends up happening because it's such a controversial idea, but it does get whispered about. I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but and not something we really plan to go into here, but we have been talking about this in the office, which is the pets, the flying with mm -hmm. pets. Mm -hmm. um, and I know it's a huge topic, but I was, I don't, I'm not really clear on what the rules are there. Is anybody, some of you guys are pet owners, like what are the rules for flying with a pet? It varies depending on the pet, depending on the size. Um, I was recently on a flight to Palm Beach and it was um, I've never been on a flight with so many pets and I had the interesting experience where um, before we boarded a man um, noticed that the you know as we were waiting for the you know for to board there were dogs everywhere like waiting to board <laughs> and there were cats and everybody's barking at each other and um, it was intense and we hadn't even gotten on the plane yet and he pulled aside um, someone uh, who worked at for JetBlue and, and said that he was afraid of dogs and that he wanted his seat to be moved. Yikes. And then he basically wanted an upgrade. And did they give it to him? They did not. Oh! She very politely told him that all of the dogs were friendly and that he would be fine and sort of left it at that, which I thought was interesting. Um, because How did he well, react? He seemed fine. Um, and I noticed when he was on the plane, he wasn't sitting near any dog, so I don't know mm. if had he been next to one, because at that point we sort of, did, you know, we didn't know who he was sitting next to. Um, I wonder if it had, be, you know, if it would have become a bigger issue, but on a flight, you know, it was just, an in I had never really thought about that, but it's an interesting um, concern. You know, what if you are afraid of dogs and there are a lot on your flight? What if you're very allergic to dogs? Yeah. And there are, you know, right. Well, and do fear and allergies get kind of counted in different categories? You know, fear is a little more subjective and allergy is... You can prove, but I mean, fear is just as. I mean, there are entire prohibiting. airlines who have stopped serving peanuts on an entire plane, right. Yeah. right? Because of the risk of a single person on that flight being allergic. Right. What if I got on a flight where there were a bunch of dogs, and I said I'm allergic to dogs? Would they treat that with the same level? Oh, that's a great question. That is interesting. Then I can attend. Like I can tell you, I'm not allergic to dogs, but I'm allergic to cats. And by the time we were up there, if I were sitting next to a cat, mm -hmm. 
I would be having a panic attack because it would be like I would not be able to breathe. Absolutely. Like, my eyes would be watering. It would be. And you at that point, you've got claustrophobia combining with whatever the allergic reaction is. And amazingly bad plain air. Yeah, oh, yeah. totally. Neuroses in the sky. It'd be awful. Like yeah. you already yeah. aren't breathing as well as you could on a plane, yeah. adding an yeah. allergy on top of that. Yeah. Well, we also were talking recently about um, St. Bernard clearly can't go under your seat, but... Was yeah, it my, you, my parents were on a flight and, and they, they didn't have their phones on, but they said that they walked past a seat and there was an owner and then in the seat next to her was her enormous St. Bernard just perched on the <laughs> airline seat because she couldn't put him under the plane or didn't want to. Yeah, you can buy a ticket so for you your... Can, that's, yeah. what buy gonna, a ticket. that's what I wanted to know. Is like, can't, Do you have to buy a ticket in that case? Yes. Unless you want... I mean, on certain airlines, you are no longer allowed to put your dog in the cargo area. Um, but There I are know certain some, breeds who are never allowed. Mm-hmm. And certain months of the year that no dogs are allowed. Because it's too cold. Mm-hmm. Or too hot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I guess in that, in that instance, you'd be forced to... But I mean, aside from the allergies, that seems reasonable to me, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I can years ago, um, when I was in the working in a music organization, we used to have to fly a lot of uh, bass players, and when we would fly bass player, we had to buy a ticket for the bass, mm-hmm. you know, because they're not putting <laughs> right. it in the cargo hold, mm-hmm. and right. and and that seemed like okay, like you got to take up all this space. Fair enough, like you have to pay for it. So th- this is what I was wondering about with the pets is like, what if you does your dog get a seat for free or do you or does it have to be on your lap? Like, what's the what are the rules? I mean, if it doesn't fit under the seat in front of you, then you have to you have to buy, buy a, a ticket. Seat. Yeah. Okay. Think of it as kids, right? right? Under a certain age, under a certain size, a kid can sit on your lap, and then I guess when they're two or <laughs> two. yeah, that seems to. What if I'm allergic reasonable. to kids who kick my seat? <laughs> Every, everybody's yeah, allergic everyone. to that. <laughs> well, then I would like to get moved and upgraded. <laughs> I think you can make that case. But so I, I'm sure everyone. that case has been made. Mm-hmm, I, yes. I'm sure that that case has been made. I have no idea what they react to that, by that. But I mean, and we're gonna uh, next next week we're gonna do a traveling with kids, and it's gonna be all parents except one person. And I'm on the. <laughs> I've been on both sides of that now, and I can you know, as the person with the child, there's nobody who's more upset about that than the parent. Okay, not all parents are like this, but most of the time the parents are like mortified and embarrassed and feel horrible because they can't control anything about it. Um, I don't know how the dog owners feel if the dogs go crazy on the flight. I think they feel this. I mean, I think they also the same feel way, right? stressed yeah. and embarrassed. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I have said this um, in other podcasts and I will <laughs> continue to say it. My travel mantra, if everyone is just as nice as they can be and resist the urge to be awful because yeah. it is such a strong urge when you're traveling, yeah. I feel like um, it goes a long way. So, to I, I, you know, I don't, no one likes to be with a like a loud kid and and I feel like I have had that urge to be annoyed and then I remember that I don't actually have to deal with the loud kid. I mean, I have to experience him or her, but I don't have to like soothe him or her or do anything other than be annoyed. So then I try and sort of shift my perspective and not be annoyed. It's also over for you when the plane lands. That's what I mean. It's like I'm not going on vacation <laughs> was, with a kid. They're there for the rest of their life. I have also uh, – I was also on a flight to Israel where I was asked if I would switch seats uh, so that a guy did not have to sit next to me. Um, it does happen a lot on flights from Israel. If men are orthodox, they don't want to sit next to women. So sometimes they'll just ask you to ask, move. Ask you person to person. Yeah. And, you know, you can usually work it out informally. People will just swap seats or, you know, maybe you have a window and I want one, so I'll trade with you or this other woman will trade with that person who will trade with you. But sometimes you can just say no. I mean, if you really like where you're sitting, if you paid extra for your seat, whatever mm-hmm. it is, uh, you know, they're the one who wants you to move. Right. You know, I don't have a problem with sitting next to a man. The man right. had a problem with sitting next right. to me. So. <laughs> well, and I think I have a problem because my entire family is, is really tall, including my mom. And so when we sit in aisle seats, sometimes people ask us to move. And, and there's a reason why you pay extra now to sit in that seat. It's not just for kicks. It's because we need the extra leg room. Right. <laughs> is it for kicking? <laughs> it is actually for kicks. Really yeah. yeah. So I think that it's it's kind of hard to make those changes when there's a very reasonable reason behind them. And that's one of the things I find so interesting about travel in general. I mean, 
it puts you into situations that you wouldn't necessarily be in. And sometimes that's an amazing thing. It pushes you out of your comfort zone, gets you to try food that you've never tried before, gets you to learn a new style of dancing or try to, new, to learn a new language or an experience like jumping out of a plane that really scares you but ends up being amazing. And sometimes the other side of it can be a person sitting next to you who you don't want to sit next to. But you have to be able to take the good with the bad. Yeah, mm -hmm. true. Speaking of good with the bad, so another story that we had this week was the the bumpy, the differing reactions between men and women to bumpy flights. What was that story about? So there was a survey that came out by a, <coughs> a travel logistics website. That's a mouthful. It's called Travel Math. And they, travel math. Travel math. Yikes. Something I am <laughs> not good at. So they surveyed 2,000 people. And they wanted to find out what their greatest fears were on a plane. Not surprising, 72% uh, of people said bad weather. Right after that, 68% uh, of people were nervous about traveling alone internationally. 67%, so close, uh, were worried about flight disasters that had been in the news and that just kind of being in their mind when they were on the plane. Finally, 66% um, were worried about mechanical issues mid-flight. But if you ever talk to either an airplane engineer or someone who like checks the wheels before the plane takes off, they say that those issues, like that doesn't happen. So I, I want to tell those 66% of people to <laughs> chill. But, um, but it does happen. Oh, but like <laughs> one in a million times. I know, but, but that's enough, I feel. Okay. If you're already someone who is prone to anxiety and if you're prone to travel anxiety, I feel, you know, as someone who, who is that way sure you you it's very hard to avoid to avoid sort of latching on right even though like i've i have read all of the books i've listened to the podcasts i have had you know i've like cornered flight attendants at parties and <laughs> like really really made you know probably enemies with them because i wouldn't let them go until i asked every single question and everything they said was extraordinarily reassuring and sort of counter to my deepest fears. So what do you do to cope? Because I want to see if it plays into like what women, quote unquote, do to cope. I've tried a few different things. I mean, I've tried to just sort of um, knock myself out. And I mean, that works, right? Because you're just sleeping through all of it. But um, as I sort of have traveled more, as I've gotten older, I've realized that I sort of... For a few reasons, I don't I don't really love that. I mean, I also, you know, you get to a place and you already are coping with jet lag. And, you know, I don't want to get somewhere and then have to sleep for another 15 hours before right. I can go and do what I want to do. Because that's, you know, you know, I'm not traveling to, you know, Italy to, like, take a snooze. So, <laughs> um, so I've been trying to sort of do that less. Um, and... Did they have any good tips on how to cope? The flight attendants or the... I mean... One person who I talked to, I just remember saying, um, and I think I've heard this before, just saying, you know, if you're ever really freaked out, you can um, just just look, just find a flight attendant, just find where they are and just look at them. Mm -hmm. And they are so calm. Yeah, that's true. Right. And it is, oh, it has been true 100% of the time. I was also recently traveling with someone who um, has an almost crippling fear of flying, and she said that she does not get on a plane, um, or she won't stay on a plane in, unless she can meet the pilot. Oh. And so she just asks as she's boarding, she just explains and says, you know, I have a fear of flying, and I would like to just say hello to the pilot. Um, and she said that, that they always let her. And that she just introduces herself and she has like a little list of questions that she asks. She says, you know, do you anticipate turbulence? When will it hit? How long will it last? And they know all of these things and that helps her. I feel like they should they should like post that or he should do some sort of he or she should do some sort of announcement, you know, at the beginning. Yeah, of the that's true. Wouldn't we all like to know those things? Yeah, there know? are some apps apparently you can track. You can track turbulence. Um, I have to say I have a theory about this that um, – if you take the subway in New York City, like we all do every day when we're commuting to work, there are a lot of euphemisms that they use for why the train's not running <laughs> and why something is broken. So, for example, if they say there's a sick passenger, right. um, that often means that someone died. Yeah. Uh, that sometimes means that somebody jumped on the tracks. It's actually a lot more serious, but they don't want people to freak out. And they also don't know how long it's going to take. So they need to tell you something vague. Right. But when I lived in London, they are painfully obvious about what's happening. They, they will tell you everything. And sometimes I appreciated it and sometimes I didn't. Once I was on a train that got stalled in the Midlands and we all had to get out 
in the middle of the day. It was freezing and really windy. And we had to wait on this train platform for one that was coming that was already full and that we had to get on. And they said it was because some punk kids threw rocks at the train. (laughs) (laughs) So I I actually think that from taking enough international flights, it's interesting to see how some countries – The pilot will give you a download the minute you get on the plane, give you kind of an idea of what to expect. And I've been told that in the U.S., people like not knowing. They do. Yeah. Less is more, I found in the U.S. That if it comes up, they appreciate knowing what's going on and that it will probably be over soon. But they're not going to tell you ahead of time. But I also think that the interesting thing about that study was that when it came to the people that travelers and flyers were trusting the most, pilots and flight attendants had 98% trustworthiness ratings, and other passengers had like a 50% trustworthiness <laughs> rating. Um, because when, when flight attendants do look at you and they calm you down, or when the pilot does answer those questions, you automatically know like they know what they're doing. And right. so you do trust them. And I think, you know, that's part of the fear, right? When you're on a plane is that you have no control. And that's mm-hmm. a terrifying thing. And if you are an uptight, you know, weirdo like me, then you <laughs> are, it's, it's like crippling to have no control and to know that, you know, things could happen and that it's in the hands of, you know, people you don't even see. So I think it makes sense, right? So because the pilots obviously have much more control than we do and the flight attendants to some extent too. And I think... And they've been through everything, right? Yeah. You know, like when a flight attendant finally has to sit down, that's why I'm like, okay, I'm going to take some meds now and try to fall asleep. Right. But even but, then, I think, because I've had that too, where it's like, as long as they're moving around, I'm good. And if they have to sit down, that means we're all going to die. <laughs> um, but I, how many times have you died? That's the thing. It's like, I've <laughs> never died. And also, I, I now Not try true. and do, you know, that trick where I will, like, you know, creepily start craning my neck to, like, make meaningful eye contact with the flight attendants, which they probably hate. And, like, but they always just look calmly back at me. They look bored. Yeah, just like, or they're flipping through a magazine and I realize, like, okay, they're not freaked out, so I'm going to try my hardest not to freak out. Uh, The thing that I do on a flight is if there's a book I've really been wanting to read or a movie that I'm really excited about, I'll save it for the flight so Mm -hmm. that um, it helps with the distraction, I think. It just gives me something to do, something that keeps me occupied, but especially if it's really juicy or something that I'm excited about, I might not even pay attention to what's happening around me. Like, if it's the kind of thing where I'll miss my subway stop on the way to work, I'm going to save it and read it on a plane. That's That's true. That's a good test. The majority of women did, actually. 70% would turn to books and TV. And then 19% would medicate, like we do, Mm -hmm. Jaina. Wait, how many? What percent? 19, although I think think that's underreported. Yeah, Yeah. they don't don't want to admit it. There's a little halo effect. (laughs) And then, interestingly, 28% would pray. Um, men, not so much praying, more so much drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Different kind Amen. of prayer. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys remember, I think it was Southwest Airlines used to have a reality show about what it was like behind the scenes of an airport. I found it really interesting. And so many of the episodes were about some person who got too drunk in the airport bar and they wouldn't let them get on the plane. And at first I thought, like, why would you get really drunk? You're going to be so dehydrated on a plane. It didn't make sense to me. And I realized I'm not afraid of flying. Yeah. And yeah. that's why it never occurred to me. Yeah. And invariably, they would ask the person who got really drunk and belligerent, why did you drink so much? And the person said, because I'm afraid to fly. Sure. Yeah. And aren't you stressed when you get to the airport? I feel like I'm always on my way to the airport after like a full day of work and I'm racing and I have like three bags. Or you on had to get up at six and, in the morning yeah. and there was crazy traffic. Yeah. And then when you finally get there, you're a little tense. You're like, I don't want to get on a giant tin can in the air and be <laughs> tense. So I'm going to have a drink no matter what the hour. Am I the only one who does that? No, no I, you're I not. Totally agree. It feels like an ordeal and you feel like you've earned it. You yeah. know, you feel like you went through something in order to get there and it, and it always is like that. For it, maybe it's New York. Maybe just New maybe, York. Maybe we're New all York just is always maniacs. that way. Not every not every airport. It feels either so hard to get to, so much traffic, so much intensity, so many lines, all of those things and it's like by the time you get to that delta counter at the end of whatever terminal it is at JFK, Um, You're just like, oh, yes, thank you. Give me the iPad. Let me order the beer. Right. Right. I mean, I think a drink I've totally done in the airport before. It's just, yeah, when I see people with like four or five and they can't even walk, I wonder, okay, are you just really afraid of flying? Or just a lightweight. (laughs) You know what? Things could be worse. You could own a castle that's about to fall into a river. That was another weird news story. I'm sorry for Scotland and the Scottish castle, but Scotland's getting some crazy rain right now, crazy floods. And Mare, I think you wrote about this poor castle. Yeah, so right around Christmas, they got hit by a really serious storm, and uh, the rivers were flooding, and uh, there's a castle that is... 400 years old and it's right by uh, one of the queen's estates um, 
the Balmoral Estate. And unfortunately, out of the 11,000 acres of this uh, baron's property, he lost his rose garden, which ended up putting his home five feet away from the floodwaters. And the it's brink. teetering on the edge. Um, yeah, the photos are really dramatic. Yeah. It looks like the thing's going to fall in any minute. It does. Now. And they actually were in the house when the entire backyard, for all intents and purposes, was swept away. It was about 50 yards of of land yeah. um, and ran screaming, I'm assuming, out of the home and ended up staying with a neighbor. But yeah, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. It's one of those so get there while you can. Yeah, Meredith, I think you wrote earlier this or last year another story about um, a lake in Mexico that actually has a church in it, but you can only see it when they haven't gotten rain. So when there's severe drought in the Atacama? No, that's... That was Chile. Yes. There's there's a lake in Mexico that has this giant uh, church in it, and when they have serious drought, which is very unfortunate for the people in Mexico, um, it raises out of the water this incredible castle, and you can take a little kayak and go kayak through the castle or climb all over it. And it's but, really beautiful. And it's the absolutely beautiful. Um, but again, it's one of those things that due to insane extreme weather is only available you know every 20 years but it has happened before the mm-hmm. one in mexico okay they yeah. knew it was there they so knew it was there yeah. okay when okay. it was the lake was created as a man-made lake so they flooded that whole area uh-huh. when they were creating this basin and then once okay. the water recedes then there's this giant beautiful ancient castle. yeah it's like 16th century yeah. church but they never know when it's gonna happen because it's it, just, it, a it just dependent thing. on the weather mm-hmm. right. yeah um, and the, 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 the house in Scotland was like a retreat for the royal family for mm-hmm. a number of years. Yeah, and, right? they, and they still rent out a section of the property for hunting and fishing to their neighbors, their royal neighbors. And now, on, honestly, to me, when I looked at the photo, it looks like there's a river. There was a smaller like a river yeah. um, behind, but now it's it's... Very looks like the Mississippi rushed through their backyard. (laughs) Exactly. And I, you know, I mean, not to get too deep into the science of it, and you know, we're not scientists, but it does feel to me like I I wonder: Are we going to be? I feel like there there have been two or three of these kind of stories in Mm -hmm. the last year. We're seeing what's going on in California right now, and I wonder if this is going to be the kind of thing that we're going to be reporting on in our way over the next few years, or ten years, or twenty years, or whatever. Um, in the in the sense that there are going to be these kind of episodes where there's some landmark, there's some beautiful location that is getting changed irrevocably or irrevocably as par- as far as we know by extreme weather, um, climate change of one kind or another, um, or the effects of those things. And you know, you guys have a sense that that there are more that we I, I feel like am I wrong in have, feeling like I've seen a couple of these recently no I don't think that's wrong at all um, and what's so interesting about stories like these is kind of one goes viral at a time so you don't necessarily put them all together and then you kind of look at some things that we've covered you know what does a Mexican lake have to do with a Scottish castle and the ex- the answer is actually a lot mm. uh, there are a lot of places around the world that are preemptively putting restrictions in place asking people not to visit asking people to spend less time there the Great Barrier Reef um, has had some severe problems they're asking people to visit less Galapagos Islands caps the number of people who can visit every year and the amount of building that can be done in the area so what happens? What's happening in the Great Barrier Reef? There's been a lot of erosion, and they're losing a lot of the coral there. And a lot of it has to do with more humans living there and being there and visiting. Mm. Well, I thought there was also some kind of like rabid starfish that was attacking the coral. <laughs> I'm not making this up. And then there was a robot. Because the temperature of the water is getting right. mm-hmm. I believe so. warmer. Yeah. And there's a robot submarine that is going to take out the starfish. Uh, I remember this. So there's a battle going on under yeah. the water. But they're injecting them with, like, vinegar or something. They are. Right, right. <laughs> Okay, let's just sum up. There is a robot that injects a rabid starfish with vinegar Mm -hmm. to stop the starfish, which is a mutant product of climate change raising the the temperature of the waters and is killing all the coral. That sounds about right. Let us confirm with science. Can I think that's right. Can we script that? (laughs) Don't tell everyone on a podcast. Next season on SpongeBob SquarePants. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of famous monuments that are wearing away too. And Jaina, you just wrote about um, in Venice, the the lion. Yes, um, 
there. It's actually, it's, I sort of love this story. I think it's very sweet and was so interesting to me because it was actually, um, so, you know, the lion is a, a very iconic symbol of Venice and um, particularly, the, particularly there is um, in the Basilica San Marco, which is the um, church in the Piazza San Marco, very famous. There is a beautiful um, winged, gilded lion. Is uh, this the one on the pedestal that sort of sits out by itself, or is it on the church itself? It's on the church. On the that's, church. Um, you know, and behind it is this really beautiful um, mosaic. And um, it, you know, is in disrepair. And um, so Chanel, the brand, actually, um, they oversaw its restoration. And the reason why is because um, Coco Chanel had this lifelong love affair with Venice, which I n- never knew about and um, thought it was so interesting because obviously you think of Coco Chanel, you think of Paris mm-hmm. and Parisian style. And, um, you know, while well, she's obviously an icon there, she um, she lost her her one great love. He died in an automobile accident, I think, in 1919. And she was, um, you know, devastated. And um, a couple who were her close friends convinced her to come with them to Venice just to try and sort of escape her grief. Um, and I think it took some cajoling, but she eventually agreed to go with him. And then she really, really fell in love with the city and fell in love with the architecture, and in particular, this lion. Mm. Um, and it, it remained sort of a source of inspiration for her entire career um and so when chanel found out that this was happening they stepped in and they partnered with um the french committee for the safeguarding of venice which i did not know is a thing (laughs) (laughs) why would there be such a thing i don't know but apparently there is i know it's great and so they removed the lion and removed the mosaic and restored both which meant you know a tremendous amount of work they had to actually like replace many many pieces of the mosaic and the lion had to get three new coats of gold Mm. um and now it's all been reinstalled and it's beautiful you know so um another great reason to go to venice um and it's up now it's up now. now you can see it now um and such a great thing that Chanel did. So who knew there was this sort of connection? I feel like it, it makes sense, right? It's like Paris is a super romantic city. Venice is a super romantic city. Coco was a Leo. Oh, <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a great story. But it's not the only example of something like this. It's not. What, what are the, um, there was the Fontana di Trevi, di, di Trevi in uh, Rome, right? Yeah. Who was it that restored it's that? It's Fendi who's restoring that one. Fendi. Mm-hmm. And, and what else? Bulgari is doing the Spanish Steps. Okay. And I think the last Which one are closed is, now? Is that yeah. going yes. on right now? Not not all of it. They've opened a small part of it, but most of it is closed. Okay. And, and the actually, Fontana, is that open or is that still that in progress? That is open. It's okay. in progress. And the other one is the Colosseum, which is being restored by Todd's. And which are all of which are Italian, Italian brands. brands. And, mm-hmm. and so, okay, so um, so in this case, you know, a little bit easier to, to understand, don't have to have that, that personal story. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they do something like that, what do they do? They ask anything of the monument? Is there any kind of do they put their logo on it? Like what's well, the... I think it's interesting that in this case, it's three Italian brands. Uh, for them, being Italian is such an important part of their brand. The craftsmanship, the locals, being part of the community, I think was really important to them. And it's also great PR mm-hmm. to be associated with something like this. That they're doing something that the public can access, even if you can't necessarily afford to buy things from these brands, you can benefit from their largesse in that way. Mm -hmm. But there was some concern in the community, I think, when these projects were announced. Italian people were thinking, wait, does this mean there are going to be logos everywhere? Does this mean that everything is going to have ads all over it? It, They were worried it would become like an American sports stadium where everything has corporate logos everywhere. And so far, that hasn't happened. And they haven't asked for anything like that? There's no sign? Not that I know of, no. Okay. Yeah, the lion is now carrying a Chanel bag. (laughs) (laughs) The crossbody. Although I will say to tie it back into monuments and places that are in danger because of humans, apparently the biggest problem on the Spanish steps was uh, people accidentally knocking into things when they were taking selfies. (laughs) Really? Yeah, you know, they would would start walking backwards to try and get the best shot, and then they would displace a rock, and and it got to be a mess. Wasn't the tagline of 2015, selfies kill? (laughs) Didn't you write about that? Selfies kill more people than sharks. Brad wrote that. Well, yeah, we... uh, That... That turned into like a bigger thing, but um, <laughs> but yeah, there are all of those episodes that we uncovered, <coughs> and that other, you know, um, publications have uncovered of people just being very, very. I mean, I think there's two components that come from the same place, which is this sort of massively kind of self-indulgent, you know, moment 
where you're you're not aware of your surroundings and you're not aware of the impact that you're having on things. But it's two different sort of versions of that. One of which is mostly just annoying and kind of selfish, which is what you're talking about, which is let me bump over a bunch of, you know, sort of antiquities while I try to get the perfect shot. Um, And the other one is let me lean way, way out over this particular gorge so that I can look really awesome to my buddies. There was another example recently of, and this happened in New York too, when there was that fire on the Lower East Side where there are people going in front of disasters in progress, Mm -hmm. right? Like, wasn't there one with the Dubai Hotel fire? Yeah, so last week, Um, It was interesting. We kind of had two photo stories related to that. One that I thought was amazing, which was a photographer who was inside the hotel when it caught on fire, was escaping by rappelling down the side of the building and yet insisted on in his left hand he was rappelling and in his right hand he had his camera. But wait, can we stop like rappelling? They had to rescue him from the side of the building. He got stuck. Did he tie the the, the, the sheets together and like (laughs) do a jailbreak out? I mean, I wish it was cooler than that. The truth is that he ended up dangling off the side of the building and had to get rescued Uh, but he did survive and he had amazing gopro footage yeah um so he was kind of seen as wow this guy keeps doing his job no matter what like his life was in danger but he was determined to capture it and then on the other side of the coin there was a couple who um took like a cute romantic kissy selfie of themselves as the and it was new year's eve it happened right before i think the fire started about 20 minutes before the fireworks so there were some people who thought it was the same thing and didn't even realize what was going on until after the fire truck showed up okay but that is an honest mistake but the the like hey disaster happening behind me let's capture the moment for posterity what is that about also you can take it you just don't have to show anyone i don't even know if you could take it no i'm gonna i'm drawing a line there no no. (laughs) why i don't even understand this is a whole other subject i don't understand the selfie impulse generally but um uh okay so the 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 monuments um but look let's have a let's let's have a fun moment and talk about uh kickstarter because we had another yet another story this week of a kind of awesome product coming out on kickstarter travel product coming out on kickstarter and this is a trend for us recently let's jana lead us into that so it is what's being called um on the Kickstarter campaign, at least the world's best sleep hoodie. Um, The brand is Hypnos. Um, And I gave it a quick check right before we um, started the um, podcast. And they are currently at over $250,000. Their goal was $30,000. Wow. um, And they have just a couple days left. So, um, What does it do? It is a hoodie that has um, an inflatable insert in the hood that you can blow up and um, and sleep on essentially. So it comes in three different colors, all sort of neutrals, and there's a, a zippered version and just a pullover. Um, it's made from a, it, you know, a, a pretty soft um, cotton blend, so it's supposed to sort of keep you cozy and comfy, and then it has this um, inflatable hood, which is also sort of designed in such a way that, you know, because a normal hood, if you just put it up and then we're trying to sort of adjust it, you know, if you were, say, leaning up against a bus window versus, like, you know, bonking your head on the tray table um, to try and get some sleep, you can sort of, the hoodie is, um, the actual hood is, I think, a little bit bigger so that you can move it around and get sort of, like, the, the perfect positioning. And if you just want to wear it, you can take the insert out. So, wait, 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 is this, like, a swimmy for your head? Like, what does this look like? <laughs> yes, I think it's sort of like um like a, if you could picture a flattened swimmy for your (laughs) head. Yes, I can. (laughs) Surprisingly, I can. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I think, you know, we've had, you know, we've covered a few of these different Kickstarter um, campaigns. We had the, you know, there was that travel jacket that I think raised over $9 million on Kickstarter. Wow. Um, And, you know, claimed to have sort of everything you would need while you're traveling sort of within it. So, as you know, uh, a neck pillow, I think, um, a cup holder, um, all kinds of other, but all kinds of like gadget storage. Um, And I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with all of these. That things. one's going into production, right? Like that that's on well on its way. Can it should you, be, can you yeah. order it yet? You yeah. Know? You should be I able to I feel like I've it. seen that one kind of enter the commercial space. Yeah. I mean I think it's an interesting thing with all Kickstarters when they um, you know, far exceed their original goal. Um, you know, especially in the case of the travel jacket, I mean it became such a bigger you know, they had to find a whole new factory, I think, to produce these jackets because, you know, the original um 
the original factory, there was no way that they were going to be able to keep up with keep the up the demand. And you know, in Kickstarter, so much of it is about you. You know, when people are um, backing these projects, there are you know there are very serious deadlines. And so, if someone is spending the money on what they think is going to be a travel jacket that they're going to get in time for Thanksgiving, yeah. You gotta, you know, you gotta deliver, and I think it's that's sort of like the blessing and the curse of raising all of these mu- these funds, and then sort of having to, you know, deliver. Yeah, when it's, you know, you thought it was going to be a couple thousand people, and when it's becoming, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand people, that's that's tough for an established brand to yeah. do. It's interesting too because the line between um, one of these things that seems awesome, one of these kind of innovations that seems awesome, like the the the, the hoodie. Versus the ostrich pillow, which is like that thing that you sort of put your heads in. You know, fine line there. I mean, I'm not sold on the awesomeness. I think of the oh, you're not. I feel like it's 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 not that far off from the ostrich. I'm sold. I'm. I would. Meredith is 100. You contribute. Buy one in a heartbeat. I have not yet contributed, but no. I mean, I just think about all of the. This is gonna sound so weird, but all of the random places I've had to sleep and how uncomfortable it's been, and how much easier it would be if you just had a pillow you could just blow up in your hood. Yes, absolutely. I think. Do I want to be? Is not sold. Do I want to be sitting there in the airport, weirdly blowing into the side of my hood when I'm already like, you know, anxiety through the roof, trying not to take drugs, t- trying not to drink, all of these things? Do I really want sort of everybody looking at me because I'm like blowing up a, a swimmy <laughs> next to my head? So I think we have time for maybe one more news item of the week. What was your favorite? Well, Lily. I want to know more about Uber travel. What does that mean? I would like to know more about Uber travel. So Uber, who we know as the ride-sharing app, over the holidays, I think they filed for and got the patent on Christmas Eve uh, to form something nebulous called Uber travel. And we don't have a ton of deals on it or information on it. What we know so far is what's coming from the patent application. But we know that they want to become a portal where people can book trips, sort of like an Expedia or an Orbitz but making sure that they have Ubers along the way, whether that's to take you to the airport or pick you up and take you to your hotel, and that you can do everything from A to Z in one place called Uber Travel. And they'll estimate, for example, the total cost of everything from your airline ticket to the hotel to the Ubers that you're going to need when you get there. And there's also a lot of when you take a taxi in another country, sometimes they don't take credit cards. Sometimes you have to change money and get the local currency. And obviously, it would all be built in with Uber. And there would be alerts to let both you and your Uber driver know, for example, that your flight was late. So they need to wait another half hour before they come to pick you up. Yeah. Well, it wasn't clear to me. Who are they trying to displace with this? Like, are they? you, you mentioned Priceline and Expedia. Are they really going to try to step into the sort of OTA and MetaSearch kind of market and, 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 and try to do sort of full end-to-end travel planning? Is that the sense that you get? Or is this something that really is very focused on the ride? I still think it's right now very ride-centric because that's what they're known for and that's the business model that they already have. But I think this is a way for them to kind of test the waters a little bit, put their feet out and see what else they can sell at the same time. Yeah. They have so much capital to sort of play around with right now. It was at $7 billion they've Mm -hmm. raised. Something like that. And also the ability to do things through your phone. They're targeting a really specific demographic that's very loyal to Uber. I think people who are already going to book an Uber on their phone while you're there, why wouldn't you also want to check on whether that flight got discounted and if you should buy it now? And there are a lot of other things that can go with it. But there's also a lot of obstacles. You mentioned a couple of them in the in the story. What are some of the obstacles they're going to face? Well, some of them are just obstacles for Uber. You yeah. know, there are a lot of cities that have been pushing back against Uber. There were strikes in London and in Paris and some other cities around the world by local cab companies who are saying that Uber is putting them out of business. There are some places where Uber is not allowed to pick people up or drop them off at the airport. Mm. Uh, so they'd have to overcome some of those obstacles, I think. And, of course... 2015 was a bit of a mixed bag for them in terms of PR. Uh, I felt like every week there was a different story about one week Uber was delivering puppies to people's office and isn't that so great? And the week after that, there was someone who claimed that they were assaulted by an Uber driver or ripped off. Well, the New Year's Eve story, too, was interesting. People, at least in New York, paying 350 bucks for a ride because of surge pricing. That Nine was yeah. times. Wow. Yeah. Are you kidding? No, yeah, kidding. people were sharing their receipts online and talking about there's been surge pricing in the past, you know, if there's bad weather or if it's a popular holiday or something. I remember once I had to take an Uber during SantaCon. 
in New York. <laughs> oh, wow. And there was surge pricing. But it's been two or three times the normal price, and this was 10 it's, times. Yeah, the highest I saw was like 9.8 times. And if you're taking a 20 dollar drive that's hundreds of dollars right and, right and you're counting on drunk people who maybe don't notice what they're clicking on yeah which is exactly what happens, what happens right because yeah. people the, going back to new to other states mm-hmm. right but uber i mean when this has happened in the past i think that uber has said hey we let you know you have to click like tw- you know a couple different times to agree to this but it's like on new year's eve yeah. you know and when you just want to get home no no we took we did car to go on new year's eve I love Cardigo. And it was great. I mean, obviously, you can't be drinking and take a Cardigo, so um, we're, like, nerds who... <laughs> what is Cardigo? Cardigo. It's a company that... Uh, I forget which state it started in. I think Austin. Austin. Or city, mm. Austin. Um, and it's basically these little smart cars around a city, or in this case, I think just in Brooklyn, right? Can uh, you go into Manhattan with... It's a great I've seen them everywhere yeah. in, in Brooklyn. You basically have a card, and there are these cars everywhere. You use the app to see if there's a car near you. Mm-hmm. If there is, you go over, kind of like... Um, so it's like Zipcar, zip car, yeah. except they park them all over the place. Yeah, and exactly. you can just leave it. You can take it. You can go to a new neighborhood. You leave it there, and then someone else can can pick it up. Are there designated uh, parking spots? No, no, wherever. Anywhere on street parking. Legally street parking. Right. I mean, some people get a little dodgy about it, but I used to commute with car to go in Seattle. Yeah, Yeah, that's the only place I've taken one was in Seattle. They're great. We use it all the time. Are they all smart cars? They're all smart cars. And you don't don't get gas. They they fill it with gas, so you don't even have to worry about that. but yeah, it was great because we thought for sure, you know, we we did go out on New Year's Eve. We're not like that much of nerds, but we, uh, you know, when it was time for us to go home, we sort of were like, oh, do we like hop on the train? It's just going to be like, you know, the vomit car because it was that time of night. So, um, but the the car to go was sitting outside um, where we had left it when we came. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah, it was great. That's great. Okay, another great week in travel. Um, so let's take it out. Um, just a reminder to everybody, visit us um, on cntraveler.com for all of the stories that we just talked about and many, many, many more. Um, you can also find us at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and at CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. Um, and right now we have a sort of big program for our uh, Australia um, Destination of the Year um, uh, program that we've been doing on Instagram. There's a lot of really great, fascinating stuff coming out. We have people from Australia who are posting every day. So this, there's been some really, really beautiful and fascinating stuff. I encourage you to check that out. Um, we will be doing some Snapchat chats around that as well. Um, and so before we go, why don't we go around and everybody tell tell the, the radio audience or the, the podcast audience where to find you. Laura. Where I live? <laughs> Just kidding. I, I'm on Instagram at Laura underscore Redmond and on Twitter at Danon825. Jaina? Uh, I'm on Instagram at JW Mallory and on Snapchat at Jaina Mallory. Uh, I, you can find me at my desk, usually <laughs> reading Facebook, but uh, I am on Twitter at Lilit Marcus, which is L-I-L-I-T, last name M-A-R-C-U-S, and Lilit goes on Instagram. And I am at Oh Hey There Mayor on Instagram and Twitter. That's delightful. That's, <laughs> that is delightful. <laughs> that's hilarious. I'm at Brad Rick, and that's it. Uh, thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. <laughs>